This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Her Vantage on BFM 89.9 and I'm Lily Chai. When we think of the word archaeology, the first thing that comes to mind for most of us is people taking a chisel, brushing dust and mud and bones. Well, archaeology is more than just that. With me in the studio today is the first archaeologist in Malaysia, Emeritus Professor Zuraina Majid, a fellow of the Academy of Sciences Malaysia. She's here to share pieces of her journey and few of her remarkable discoveries in her entire career, which is the Parak Men and Kota Tampan. Now, if they sound familiar to you, it's because they have been written in our textbooks. And she is also here to shed some light on the importance of learning about our past through archaeology. Welcome to the show, Prof. Thank you, Lily. Thank right. you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, there are a lot of misconceptions about archaeology. And uh, like people will think it as digging up dinosaur bones. And we tend to associate with Indiana Jones as well. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of what archaeology really is and why it is important? Lily, let's, uh, let me give you the basics first, yeah? Like, you know, uh, what is the time period that we cover? If you draw a vertical line, top to bottom, 99.9% of that line is prehistoric period, the period when there are no documents to help you understand what our past was. Um, and 0.1% is what we know from our history books. Uh, history of Malacca, history of uh, Europe, history of the world, right? They are based on documents plus archaeological work, okay? So the large vacuum in human understanding about ourselves is in this prehistoric period. And the only tool to understand that period is archaeology. That's a scientific tool. Now, archaeology doesn't just tell you about the period, the people, their culture, their history, but it also holds the secrets to other disciplines. For instance, um, the history of medical science. Now, my discovery in Sarawak, in Guanya, uh, of a skeleton, which I named Nya 1977, because that was when I discovered it, uh, suffered from a congenital deformity called Amelia. Now, that is the earliest evidence for medical science in the world, eh? for medical science on that particular congenital deformity. We also hold the past for extinction of animals. We might find it in our excavation where we can date it and we can provide that information to zoologists who may not have thought that that animal was extinct and we show them, no, it's not. So we provide data for other disciplines as well. We provide data for, for botanists from environmental reconstruction based on pollen studies in the earth. So it's a tool that contributes towards other disciplines, while it is also a tool that uses other disciplines to analyze and obtain reliable data. Right. So archaeology is a multidisciplinary subject. We have no disciplinary boundaries in a way because I will go anywhere to any scientific discipline that will help me interpret what I have excavated. 
So in my team would be um, uh, dentists, would be uh, anatomists, orthopedic surgeons, you know, so there could be a whole range, even DNA. It's a team that is uh, formed based on your finds. Now, by nature, archaeology is destructive because you are removing the artifacts from its original location. So we have to be very careful. We have to record it honestly, and it requires a high degree of integrity. As they say, we are detectives of the past. We use, as I told you, any discipline available to us. So these are the basic characteristics of um, archaeology. Right. Uh, You are the first professionally trained archaeologist in Malaysia. Um, Are we as a nation fast enough to recognize the importance of this field of study? I think uh, the Madeka Award by Petronas and Shell has helped tremendously in sort of allowing this interview, for instance. Yeah, Um, It's very important to help promote a culture of excellence. This is an opportunity for people to understand archaeology and um, to be aware of what we have. Right. Being a female in this male-dominated field, what kind of hurdles and challenges have you faced and how have you overcome these challenges? Lily, I'm not sure whether the challenges, the major challenges I faced uh, were due to gender or Was it due to just lack of awareness about the subject? I think it's more lack of awareness when I first started. I doubt it was gender because I managed to overcome it. If there were any reservations, it was because I was alone. I was a lone ranger. It is always very difficult for people to support or to give funds to someone who is alone. So that was when I felt that the country needs more of me, more archaeologists, and that I should do something about it. But what challenge I faced that was gender-based, definitely gender-based, actually came from inside. It came from my own excavation team. You see, when I first started, I took people from different universities, people from the museums, uh, to form my, uh, my excavation team. And, you know, when we go into the jungles, we are often in danger. It's obvious we're in danger of, especially in Langong, in danger of uh, tigers, in danger of, you know, big uh, animals, as well as small. I'm very afraid of snakes. And we're in danger of slipping because we explore caves, we climb. And one of my team members refused to give me a hand when I needed a hand, otherwise I would lose my, my step, I would slip. And he refused. And I said, put my hand out to him. And he refused because, you know, I'm a female. He couldn't hold my hand. And my life was at stake and I'm the boss. So I made it very clear right from the beginning, there's no gender. We're all in danger. And we have to help each other, devoid of gender. We have to focus not on gender. We have to focus on our safety. We have to focus on our job. Hmm. So that was easily settled. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm curious as to, has it changed over the years? Uh, you have been in this field for so long. Has this uh, gender bias or challenge that 
you have been facing over the years, has it changed as to how? No, I haven't, I haven't really faced gender bias, hmm. except in this uh, very minor case, which was easily handled. But other than that, there is nothing of such that reoccurred? Not that I can remember. Mm. You know, not that I can remember because um, I think people were open to ideas. They were open. They knew that I was well-trained and they knew what I wanted to do, but it was not government priority at that time. I don't think it was my gender because obviously they have no choice, right? Mm. <laughs> And there wasn't um, a man, um, you know, right. uh, rivaling me at that time. Mm, something that you said is, it, professional fields, regardless of what it is, it has to be genderless. Doesn't yeah. matter if you're a female or a male, right? That's very, very inspiring. I, I want to know why did you start and embark on this archaeology journey when you were young in in seventies when no one was doing anything of such. That's the reason because no one was doing anything. It needed to be done. I didn't want to be the Lone Ranger. It was no fun. I had no one to discuss my work with. So uh, it was much needed. And uh, I felt a responsibility because I was sent abroad to be trained. Uh, and it's my responsibility to come back. You know, it's like payback time. Uh and um, it was a time when Malaysia was uh, developing different fields. And I felt that this is a field that needs to be developed. I've been trained for it. And it's time I did something about it. So I made it a mission, my own personal mission, to develop the field. And in order to develop the field, I felt I couldn't just train students at the master's or PhD level, but I had to also provide them with a house where, you know, their career could grow. Hmm. So if they didn't have um, positions uh, in archaeology, then they will not be able to continue the mission. Right. So what I did was to work towards the establishment of a Centre for Archaeological Research in USM. So after founding that centre, these students that I train have a career, a long-term career to continue as the next generation of archaeologists. And this was where I'm also very grateful to Petronas because um, I did some uh, consultancy work for Petronas that they didn't know indirectly helped train graduate students uh, who in turn train other graduate students. So then whatever they I earned from them has got a long life. Right. All right. I want to touch on education part later, but I want to talk about your remarkable discoveries along in your entire career. The first is the Kota Tampan, a Paleolithic stone tool, and the Parakman, the Paleolithic uh, skeleton. And both of these discoveries are at the Lenggong Valley. And because of these discoveries, Lenggong Valley is recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2012. Can you share the process of how the discovery happened especially when the technology back then was not as advanced as it is now. And I'm curious as to how were you able to identify the, the tool as Kota Tampan and the skeleton as uh, Paragman? Uh, I think the technology today too, the technology at that time was pretty advanced. And I dealt with, you know, top-notch scientists in these various areas in the world. 
locally and internationally because I realised these were very important sites and needed the best minds. Like Because it's for our own history, I wanted the best. Now, Kota Tampan is a very, very long story if I were to tell you how I discovered the site or why I went to the site. Maybe I'll just focus on why is the site important? Why is Kota Tampan important? Okay, Kota Tampan is an undisturbed site. Undisturbed means we were the first hands to touch it, the first eyes to look at it since it was left there about 74,000 years ago. That means it was left as is. And when things are left as is, our interpretations can be more accurate. Okay, data gathering is a lot easier. So it was a rare site for Southeast Asia. Now, a Paleolithic stone tool workshop, this is it for Southeast Asia. And because of that, because it was an undisturbed uh, site, it could provide a lot of answers to questions that were pending at that time for Southeast Asian archaeology. Things that were pending were, how did man make stone tools in Southeast Asia? We did not know because we did not have an undisturbed stone tool workshop. So Kota Tampan held those answers. And um, why is stone tool, someone would ask me, why is stone tool so important? Because the culture was focused on stone tool technology. That was all they knew. So for us to look at that period, we have to understand stone tools. We have to understand how the mind works. I tried to get into the minds of these people. I tried to see, you know, why did they choose certain tools? Why did they make it in such a way? Why did they use, why did they form it into such shapes? And all they showed me that they were very rational. They were very aware of the stones around them. Uh, It was as if they had taken Geology 101. Hmm. They chose the best which we would choose too in terms of hardness, in terms of edge sharpness, and in terms of weight for the functions that they have to do. Now, we still use these criteria for our knives today. Mm. We still use stone today. Look at your batu tumbo, your batu giling. That's the remnants of uh, Neolithic and Paleolithic tools. So we carry whatever we want to be carry. Now, maybe the next two generations won't have Batu Tumbo anymore because they've developed other technologies. So we are at the tail end, probably, of stone tools. Um, so this was the heart of their culture. And we discovered the heart of their culture. Okay, it's time for us to take a short break for some messages, but don't go anywhere. Okay. I'm here with Emeritus Professor Zuraina Majid, Malaysia's first archaeologist, here on Her Vantage, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Banish feudal mentality, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back. You're listening to Her Vantage here on BFM 89.9. I'm Lily Chai. I'm here with the first archaeologist in Malaysia, Emeritus Professor Zuraina Majid, a fellow of the Academy of Sciences Malaysia. Before the break, we talked about what archaeology is and how challenges face being in this very male-dominated field and the process of how 
the discovery of Kota Tampan in Lenggong Valley. Uh, I want to explore more about the Paragmen uh, in Lenggong Valley. How did the discovery come about as it is very important and that pivoted and changed the global history? Kota Tampan also changed global history. Kota Tampan contributed to our knowledge on the migratory route of early man out of Africa into Australia. He went by Kota Tampan down to Indonesia and further south to uh, Australia. And we suspect this was around, this wave was around uh, 74,000 in Kota Tampan and he arrived in Australia around 60,000 years ago. We knew he must have crossed Sundaland, which was Southeast Asia, but we didn't know the route exactly. So Kota Tampan provided evidence for the migratory route of early man out of Africa to Australia. Yeah. Now, Perak man was, um, came later. Perak man was about 10,000 years ago, 10 to 11,000 years ago. Um, he is the earliest, most complete uh, skeleton um, in Southeast Asia. Now, when you have a complete skeleton, then you, you have a lot of information within you that you can contribute towards uh, knowledge of that particular period, right? So from um, a Perak man, we could not just uh, analyze the skeleton to find out the basics, his age, his diet, uh, his way of life, his uh, burial ritual, uh, but also his congenital deformity. He was another skeleton that had congenital deformity called brachymesophalangia type A2. Now, he is the earliest evidence for medical history on such a congenital deformity. Uh, as I told you earlier, archaeology doesn't just work on culture, people, history, but also we also contribute to other disciplines. So in this case, uh, he has contributed to medical science. Now, he was a, a, a man who was who died at the age of 40 to 45, when the lifespan at that time was just about 20 to 25. Mm. So you can imagine the uh, amount of information that he held to be transferred to several generations. So he would have known how to hunt, where to hunt, when to hunt, what to hunt, you know, and even perhaps for healing illnesses. Okay, so he might have been a very important man in the society for the knowledge that he held. He was like an encyclopedia for them. Although he had a deformity, he couldn't be one of them. He couldn't climb. He couldn't go out and hunt with them. But yet he performed a very important role and he was buried very respectfully hmm. in a ritual that showed great respect. You know, for instance, even the shells that he was buried with, brochure costula, it's like Sipot Sudot, they selected big ones put near his body and the rest they surrounded around his burial. They, they picked about almost 3,000 pieces of these. They buried him with his stone tools. They buried him with food. And we also know his cause of death, the cause of death. We knew that he suffered toxemia. Okay. He had a tooth problem, gum problem. And he suffered for almost one week with that problem. Now, it is very rare um, for us to know the cause of death. Hmm. In, in this particular case, 
we managed to find out through our joint effort with a, a dental scientist, Professor Rani from uh, USM in, in uh, Kubang Krian. Um, just like uh, in Kota Tampan, we found out the cause of abandonment. Why did these people abandon the site? Now, that's very rare also in archaeology. They abandoned the site because of this huge Toba eruption uh, that would have put the place in total darkness from one week to 10 days. So the interpretations that we could make from Kota Tampan were really unusual because we tried to interpret as much of the data as possible using all sorts of scientific technologies available. Right. So it was a site that was rich in information because we worked together with a lot of scientists and the excavations were conducted very carefully so that uh, the interpretations can be more precise. Right. Uh, I'm curious about this. How do archaeologists know where to go to? I like this situation. How did you know that you want to go to Langong Valley instead of other places to make this discovery? I know I had to go to Langong for a few reasons, but I don't know where in Langong. Right. Now, I wanted to go to Langong because I had been working in Guanya the famous site in Sarawak. And I told myself, well, this site has been dated to about 38,000 years ago. Nothing close to that in Semenanjung, Malaysia. But they must have crossed Semenanjung, Malaysia, I thought. And how is it we don't have any uh, site any earlier than that, or even close to that date? At that time, the earliest we had in Semenanjung, Malaysia was about eight to 10,000 years only in Guacha, Kelantan. So I said, there must be a Paleolithic site in Semenanjung, Malaysia. So I, um, I did my literature survey and I found that, you know, two government servants, colonial British government servants, uh, who, who excavated two sites there as a hobby. So they excavated the sites and then they collected whatever they saw and, um, they stored it in two museums, British Museum and Raffles Museum. So I went to these places to see what these items were because the controversy at that time was you can't take this site, uh, this Lingong area into account because what was found there were not man-made tools. Mm -hmm. They were just broken stones. So I wanted to solve that controversy because this would mean uh, Malaysia has Paleolithic site or Malaysia hasn't got Paleolithic site. Uh, Peninsula Malaysia. Hmm. So that was what encouraged me to go to Langong. Right. Okay, so besides this discovery being a very significant achievement in your career, how has it impacted you and your relationship with archaeology? Um, I just feel that my mission has been accomplished. You know, what I set out to do, I have accomplished, in fact, even more, because I didn't expect to build a field station for archaeology in Langong, but I managed to get donations uh, and I managed to do that as well, besides just the Centre for Archaeological Research in USM Penang, which is a Centre for Archaeological Research for Malaysia. Hmm. I'm satisfied. I've done my best. 
Right. It's time for us to take a short break for some messages, but don't go anywhere. I'm here with the first archaeologist in Malaysia, Emeritus Professor Zuraina Majid, a fellow of the Academy of Sciences Malaysia, here on Her Vantage, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Business-filled minds, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Her Vantage Show on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. I'm Lily Chai. I'm here with the first archaeologist in Malaysia, Emeritus Professor Zuraina Majid, a fellow of the Academy of Sciences Malaysia. Before the break, we were talking about her discovery, which changed the global history of uh, archaeology. Now, Professor, in terms of the preservation of heritage and history, do you think Malaysia has done enough? And if not, where are we lacking is it storytelling? Is it education? Where are we lacking? I think uh, we made a good step by establishing the Department of National Heritage and by having an act on the national on national heritage. And I think that department is a very important department, and um, it's been doing a good job so far. Without that department, I think we would be um, really far behind because the whole world is no longer looking at museums and history. They are looking at heritage. It's a larger umbrella for our past. So I think um, uh, we, we're doing the right thing. But is it enough? Well, what nothing is enough. You know, nothing is ever enough. Uh, we're also doing very well in terms of development of developing UNESCO World Heritage Sites in um, Sabah, Sarawak. Yeah, they're looking after Mulu and Kinabalu very well. They're doing conservation of the environment very well. Uh, Melaka and Georgetown too are good examples of um, of a World Heritage Site that has developed. Uh, and at the same time, they have to look into protection as well because protection is the key. Tourism is secondary. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure I can say the same for Langong, World Heritage Site. There's been so much already in the press, so I don't need to repeat here disappointments in Langong. Mm. It's the only World Heritage Site, archaeological World Heritage Site in our country. And yet, it's been left like that since 2012. Mm. So... It's a state matter because land is a state matter. Development is a state matter. So it depends on um, what plans they may have. But they certainly need a master plan. It cannot be developed piecemeal. Hmm. And that master plan has to bear in mind protection and development within the realms of protection. All right. Uh, you're in education as well because you believe... Um, Education is a priority and many students, especially in Malaysia, are still afraid to make archaeology as their full-time career. Um, why do you think that Malaysians, young Malaysians specifically, are deterred from pursuing this area of study? Uh, when I first started, uh, it was very difficult to get the interests of students because they were very job-oriented and they thought that there's no future in archaeology, they can't get a job. And very few people would get jobs directly related, for instance, in museums, because there are very few people that they would need. In terms of numbers, it's a bit risky. But I think that things have changed now. 
Mm-hmm. There are many archaeologists now. Uh, and the Center for Archaeological Research in Malaysia has a lot of students in USM. I also think that uh, things are changing as students look at an arts degree as um, as a training of the mind, rather than you go in to be to to take on a profession that you will uh, profess when you go out, like you know, being an accountant or being. Um, an architect, or being a doctor, or being a lawyer, but uh, archaeology is a perfect. I feel it's a very good discipline for the training of the mind, so that when they go out, they would be able to take on any job because it's a, it's a field that is problem solving, and when you work, it's problem solving every day. They don't need to apply archaeology directly. They don't need to be a professional archaeologist. It's good training because it has no disciplinary boundaries. You just have to solve your problem with whatever scientific methods available. It trains you to be evidence-based. It trains you to be logical. It trains you to have an open mind. Get your data, analyze your data, interpret your data. I think it's a superb field that that uh, straddles both the arts and the sciences. Right. Uh, this is a very personal question because I'm very curious as to what do archaeologists do on a daily basis? What does a, a day of your work look like? It's very varied. Mm. It's not boring at all. Every day is a different day. Every day brings you closer to your total interpretation of something. For instance, you go to the field Every day in the field is also different because every day you're discovering something and that leads you on to something else. Every day you are dealing with people, you're dealing with things, you're dealing with the environment. You know, it's really fascinating. Then when you come back, you analyze these things and they give you further answers to your questions. And then you work together with other scientists and you discover new things. So when you make a discovery, it is not, voila, once you discover something. No, it's not. It is step by step by step. And then you get, ah, so this is it. So it's a, it's a field that is... Um, it's like pulling boring. puzzle pieces together. and then Right, get, right, right. right. Mm. What kind of impact... Or will it make when more people, specifically younger generations or maybe older generations as well, uh, learn more about history and archaeology? A better understanding of oneself, a better understanding of who you are, a better understanding of how small we are in this big range of time and space. Right. And how we are here as a result of the past and how we now have to transfer that on to the next generation. Right. Okay. What happens if an archaeologist discovers something that will spark controversies or maybe perhaps change history completely? How would archaeologists go about that? There's nothing controversial that we discover because it's all evidence-based. We have to be very honest in our excavations. We have to record it honestly. And we have to be guided by archaeological ethics. So there's nothing controversial because it is the evidence that 
provides you with this conclusion. Now, if that conclusion is different from other archaeologists, earlier archaeologists' work, then it will be an academic uh, discussion. It will be an academic controversy, like what happened in uh, Kota Tampan. Some said the stones were natural, some said the stones were man-made. Okay, then we go in and we have an academic discussion. But um, nothing else except that, this, you know, is purely academic. Hmm. Nothing political, nothing, nothing. Right. Okay, uh, final question to wrap up the show. What is the dream discovery for you as an archaeologist, specifically in Malaysia? If you ask my colleagues in the world, they'll say, I've had more than a my dream share, <laughs> you know, share of my dreams because I've, uh, I've got more than I ever dreamed of. Um, but there are questions that I would like to answer. I would like to get answers to. For instance, what happened to the people after Toba eruption? Where did they go to? And um, how did they revive living again, their culture again? after that major eruption? Did they all die? Or did they move to a safer place? What did they do? So I think I've been very fortunate. I've been very blessed because I don't know what's under the ground. A lot of it is guidance. I I just hope that I have done justice to what I excavated. I have done my best and I hope it's, you know, well-received. Well, mm. All right. This was a very wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with me, Prof. Thank you, Lily. I've been speaking to Emeritus Professor Zuraina Majid, the first archaeologist in Malaysia. If you miss any part of this show, you can go ahead on our website at bfm.my or the BFM app that is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. I'm Lily Chai and this has been Her Vantage here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.